Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm delighted that for today's Spirit in Action, we will be speaking with Hardy Merriman, grateful for the insightful, incisive, and comprehensive view that Hardy brings to us as President and CEO of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. Remember those letters, I-C-N-C. He's worked in the field since the early 2000 aughts, and he's led I-C-N-C since 2015. This is an organization that has been gathering the big picture info based on scrutinizing data points from across the globe about the methods of nonviolent conflict, what has worked and what hasn't, sharing that info widely in 60-plus languages. ICNC, in other words, has been accumulating and distributing the knowledge to equip nonviolent struggles around the world. I could waste your time with completely true but completely unnecessary superlatives about both Hardy and the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, but instead I am eager to jump right on to our Zoom call with Hardy Merriman joining us from Washington, D.C. Hardy, thank you so very, very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. How turbulent are things right now with ICNC, with the transition going on? Well, the transition is something that we've thought through and anticipated for several months. So transitions always have their share of, you know, unexpected turbulence. (laughs) But as transitions go, we've tried to mitigate as much as we can. Let's spell out for the world what ICNC, what the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict both has been and what it's becoming. But let's deal with the past to start with. I think 2002 it originated. What is it? Why was it created? The International Center on Nonviolent Conflict was founded in 2002 by Peter Ackerman and Jack Duval. And it's a private operating foundation in Washington, D.C. with an educational mission. It aims to build educational infrastructure around civil resistance, basically helping people to share knowledge. We'll first build a research base, share knowledge, create opportunities for skill building for people who are fighting for human rights, freedom, and justice around the world using nonviolent tactics like strikes and boycotts and civil disobedience and other acts of non-cooperation. So is it kind of a nonviolence think tank? Is that what maybe an alternative way of describing it? Yeah, we have. I mean, we are think tank-like. We use the term nonviolent action or nonviolent conflict or civil resistance as opposed to nonviolence. We draw a distinction, which we can talk about. But our function has been a bit like a think tank, trying to build educational infrastructure. We have both gone on the research side of trying to, again, build a body of knowledge based in social science research methods on why some movements succeed, why others fail, and how they can be more effective, and produce that knowledge, share it, get it in forms that people can read, whether it means translating it into their language or putting it into a non-academic medium that's freely downloadable. Um, And we've also organized a lot of convenings and events, bringing together a lot of activists and dissidents from around the world, but also journalists, people in NGOs, people in the policy community, and certainly scholars. We try to do as much interdisciplinary and international connecting as we can 
because we want to do what we can to build this field in a way that reaches a wide range of people. So that has been the mission of ICNC since back in 2002. Is the mission changed now as of this transition you're making? The mission hasn't changed, no. I mean, the focus is still educational and on civil resistance. About really, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago, we could see that one of the greatest areas of growth and opportunity was among scholars and to try to really increase funding and support in the research base for civil resistance in academic institutions. And so we focused there. We also focused a great deal on activists as well and other forms of outreach. But particularly in the scholarly community, what we found is that it has really taken root there, which is not to say it wasn't rooted before. It's just that it's increased significantly. And it's not surprising because universities have they represent their own organizational base and infrastructure. More funders have gotten involved. So it was, it was soil that where it could take root. It's a little harder sometimes to make stuff take root with activists because there's less organizational basis there and less funding. But with universities and scholars, it has really picked up. And so after really 15 plus years of that being a major focus for ICNC, one of our major focal points, the view of the board was, okay, that seems to have its own momentum. The role that we once played is not the role that we necessarily need to continue to play in the future. Now, at the same time, authoritarianism around the world has increased over the last 15 years. If you look at the organization Freedom House, which ranks every country and territory in the world on uh, political rights and civil liberties, and has done so since 1972, you'll see 15 consecutive years of democratic decline and authoritarian rising. It's extremely Uh, disturbing and upsetting. It's at our doorstep. It's something that cannot be ignored. We also know that civil resistance is one of the primary means by which authoritarianism is challenged. It's one of the prime ways in which democracy is advanced in the world. So the decision was made to reallocate resources to building up field programs more and also to do outreach to the policy community which historically has not always focused on civil resistance movements, but now it seems quite important that they become sensitive or more sensitive in how to support these movements. I want to revisit one thing you mentioned. You tend to speak about civic resistance instead of nonviolence. And yet I will note in your name, there's that word nonviolence. It's in the title, so you can't get away from it. The place I remember civil-based resistance first coming to my consciousness was in the 80s when I heard Gene Sharp speak. Is some of this work building off of what he's done? He certainly has been a leader in codifying, organizing, bringing all this stuff together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gene and the work he did was so foundational in establishing the field that we attempt to further grow. Um, You know, just two notes. uh, I worked for Gene Sharp for three years at the Einstein Institution before moving to ICNC. And uh, Sharp was one of Peter Ackerman's advisors in (laughs) when Peter was getting his PhD studying nonviolent movements. And they also uh, worked together at the Einstein Institution uh, with Peter on the board and as a supporter, and Gene as senior scholar and director at one point, as I I recall. So there's a lot of intersection there, both personally, but also intellectually. Um, You know, 
we're indebted to Jean for, I think, saying, look, there's, we need to make this into a discipline that we apply social science methods to, to understand how it works. He wasn't the first person to come to that conclusion, of course. I mean, Gandhi, Einstein, and many others made the observation. But with Jean's dissertation at Oxford and his subsequent publication in 1973 of the Politics of Nonviolent Action, it really put the field on the map in a new way. Let me talk a little bit about the mission and the shift in the mission for ICNC. One of the things that your announcement that you just sent out was that education and training of dissidents internationally was going to become one of the foci that you're using, that um, you're actually trying to train people more than just provide information. How is that qualitatively done? Well, I think it's really important as an external actor, if you're going to engage with movements, is the first thing you need to do is listen. (laughs) So we start there, right? It's the people on the ground who know their situation better than any outsider will ever know. And certainly they have the most at stake and, and they're risking the most and they put the most into their struggle, their movement. So the first thing we want to do is listen. And then I'll actually draw from something that, you know, I heard Gene Sharp mention many times in which I've always relied on as well, which is to wage civil resistance effectively, you really need two kinds of knowledge. You need local knowledge about your particular circumstances, your community, your region, your country, and generic knowledge about the dynamics of civil resistance, how and why it works, generic strategic principles. It helps if you have access to case studies and planning methodologies. So you can take that generic knowledge of best practices of civil resistance, you know, which has been gathered both from activists around the world of what works as well as from scholars, and then apply it to your local circumstances. So as an outsider, I'm keenly aware that, you know, unless I'm talking about my own community, I only bring the second kind of knowledge. Right. I'm only going to bring as much social science and other activist examples as I can and planning methodologies and, and case studies and so forth. But what we found over the years is that if you introduce that, it has remarkable effects. People take it and apply it the way they want to. It's not surprising. And you don't have to go proselytizing about it. You don't have to say you should really do this or I advise you to do that or you should become an activist. The simple exposure to this knowledge has major effects on attitudes and behaviors, which we see consistently in our monitoring and evaluation efforts. So I'm very comfortable speaking with people, knowing my place, being clear about what my place is, being clear that I'm not here to give advice, and also trusting that that sets into motion a process where people will take what's valuable to them, also give me a lot of feedback. I mean, I've learned an enormous amount from the activists around the world with whom I've interacted and they are a daily inspiration for me. And that really through work together, you know, ultimately try to be of service to them. How much have you been living in, acting in, doing your work in the ivory tower versus out on the ground? Uh, Your trainings, I imagine over the past year, because of COVID, we've all gotten used to using Zoom, just as you and I are doing right now. Trainings before, I think, used to be much more in person. So maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe that's changed. So how much time has been studying, philosophizing, organizing, and how much of it has been out there on the ground? And I'm talking here about Hardy Merriman. 
Yeah. For me, a lot of my work has been <laughs> trying to think over 18 years because it's changed. You know, initially it was a lot of learning and studying and listening to Gene and reading books and listening to activists to just get as much as I could and being mentored by a range of people from Gene to Robert Helvey to some of the Serbs who founded Ultpor in Serbia to, you know, later on, uh, Reverend James Lawson, Peter Ackerman, Jack Duvall. Uh, certainly learned enormous amounts from Erica Chenoweth and Ray Stefan over the years and so many others. Uh, I mean, literally hundreds of people with whom I've had the honor of interacting over these years who have taught me. And then where my practice has primarily been has been in workshops and trying to facilitate knowledge sharing and skill building. So my practice has been more in the organizational realm, running an organization and seeking to be of service as someone who works in an NGO and has resources that can be allocated to try to be helpful. I have engaged in my own organizing and activism as well. So really, it's a combination of, of all of them. But when I think of the role that I've tried to play the most, it would be to be a facilitator to build educational infrastructure. And sometimes that means being on the back end as a funder. And other times that means being right up in the front of the room, trying to work with a group. So ICNC, and again, folks, that's International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, specifically up front, you had stated that we don't provide money to revolutionaries, in essence, even if they're nonviolent revolutionaries, that in fact, you've been doing research and promoting that research so that people would have resources for that. But I guess you could say in some way you weren't partisan. Is that changing at all? Well, the thing about funding is I want to clarify that. So one of our operating guidelines is we're not going to try to finance movements, right? So if people want money for banners or to buy computers or various other materials that they'll need for their actual movement work, we're not going to support that. We're not going to support salaries of people who are going to be full-time organizers to try to support their movement's goal. And there are, I can get into that more if, if, you, if there's interest in that. What we have been willing to support is people's efforts to be educators in their own communities. So, for example, we've given grants to organizations so that they can do their own customized civil resistance training. And those have been some of the most consequential and impactful things that we've done. And we've certainly obviously given grants to scholars for research. So there's, we will provide material support, but so long as it's nonpartisan and yeah, we don't want to be the people who are quote unquote financing movements by saying, okay, yeah, we'll give you money so you can do a demonstration there. Some others might feel better suited for that. Our basic model of change is that if you're going to wage civil resistance and win human rights and democracy, it's a skill-based endeavor. So if we can be helpful on the skill building and strategizing side, other people might be suited for other kinds of work and, and support. In your mission statement, I think it's point number three, it says, in our work, we do not provide political or strategic advice to those contemplating or engaged in civil resistance. We do not assist activists in conducting civil resistance actions, and we do not furnish funds to subsidize movements operations. That political strategic advice, sometimes I can imagine I'm out there in Serbia or wherever, in Egypt, right? In Sudan, I can come to you and say, I could really use some advice on this. So you have to say like a lawyer, like I don't give advice or what happens then? Don't you get requests for advice? Yeah. And I, I am lawyerly about it. I say, I, I cannot give you advice. <laughs> I, it's the simplest way to be clear and it, it's efficient. And I say, look, I can't give advice I don't know what's best for your situation. 
In fact, if I thought if if I came and confidently gave you advice, I'm not sure you should listen to me. You should be skeptical of foreigners <laughs> who come with lots of advice. So, but here's what I can do. And you know, another aspect of what I do beyond again trying to give access to resources, translations, workshops, and all of that is to connect activists with other activists, and sometimes to connect activists with scholars or people in the NGO community who can be helpful to them. You know, for years, ICNC worked in conjunction with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And we put on a course called the Fletcher Summer Institute for the Advanced Study of Nonviolent Conflict starting in 2006. And it was later renamed the ICNC Institute for the Advanced Study of Civil Resistance. But functionally, it was the same thing, regardless of name. We brought together 40, about 45, maybe almost 50 activists and others every year from around the world for basically a five to six day immersive workshop, course, seminar in civil resistance. And so doing that 11 times between 2006 and 2016, we just built up this amazing network of people who were doing really unbelievable work, many of them not well known. And what that created was it created an opportunity for me to be able to connect people who might not otherwise know each other. So if there was an anti-corruption group, you know, in a country on one continent, and I knew another activist who had a similar circumstance thousands of miles away, I could connect them. And those kinds of connections, I, I believe, were really powerful. Oftentimes, I would make them and step back, and I don't know what happened to them. But the ones that I do know what happened to them, they flourished. They were incredibly powerful. I do believe that activists and organizers are the best teachers of each other. So training, providing information is a significant part of what you do. I know that you listened to my interview with George Lakey, or at least part of it. I've interviewed him a number of times. And his work with Training for Change, I mean, he's been involved in activism, civil, nonviolent activism for quite some time, but Training for Change has been out there doing kind of work. How would you compare or contrast the work of ICNC with that of Training for Change? Well, one of my regrets is that I never got to go to a Training for Change workshop, and I really wanted to go to a Super T. I think it was 18 days long and go through it. I knew others who went through it and got a lot out of it, and I, I just didn't have the time ever to quite do that, and so I regret it. So I feel reluctant to draw comparisons because I don't feel that I'm familiar enough with Training for Change's work to be able to draw that comparison. I mean, I think Training for Change has done amazing work on everything from group formation and team formation and, and managing those dynamics dynamics, uh, as well as a lot of consciousness raising about privilege and the way in which it functions in groups and societies and how movements can walk their talk. I think Training for Change has done a lot of really valuable work on civil resistance and nonviolent action uh, for a whole range of goals. I consider George a teacher. I read him and uh, read what he writes and learn from him when I talk to him. I have the utmost respect for him. He's uh, particularly just yeah, I mean, I could go on, but I'll stop there. I see what we do as complementary. Another name that you, you mentioned, Gene Sharp, and your work with him, the Einstein Institute, and I've got an interview about the Einstein Institute and our long log of the Spirit in Action program since 2005. You mentioned in passing Erica Chenoweth, and I've never interviewed her. The book that she and Maria wrote, uh, it was so foundational in terms of documenting that. And I understand there's at least one writing I saw in your list of resources that she authored or co-authored. I just wonder if it wouldn't be valuable for our listeners for Spirit in Action to revisit why nonviolent civil-based resistance 
why this really should be the place where we're aiming. Erica and Maria, I think, maybe did the definitive work, from my point of view, about comparison. Use violent methods versus nonviolent methods and see what you get. So could you talk a little bit about that overview? Yeah, and I'd love to actually start with a story, and I hope I get the details right. But, you know, in 2006, ICNC put on a a workshop for professors and faculty called People, Power, and Pedagogy, and it was at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. And Erica, at that point, was a graduate student who, uh, as I recall, was studying political violence and insurgency to some extent and getting her PhD in that and attended an event that we held, a multi-day event on civil resistance. And I think, you know, by her own admission, was skeptical of it. And she writes about this in her actually new book, Civil Resistance, What Everyone Should Know, which I'm about halfway through and is remarkable. And she writes about her skepticism. And and so, you know, part of what happened is that she teamed up with Maria Stefan, who then was at ICNC and later went on to do other things. And ICNC wrote a significant grant to support a major data set, uh, Erica developing a major data set of civil resistance and violent insurgencies cases between 1900 to 2006. You know, Erica's claim was, you know, you can't really say for certain the effectiveness of civil resistance unless you compare it with the alternatives. You could talk about Poland in 1989 with the Solidarity Movement and the democratic transition there. And yet at the same year, the massacre in Tiananmen Square happened. So we can trade cases, but what does the body of data say? And so once that data set was done and ultimately published in 2011, it was really a huge leap forward in the field because what Erica found and and what Maria also substantiated through her qualitative research was that over the about 100-year period from 1900 to 2006, the average civil resistance campaign achieved its stated goals 53% of the time, whereas the average violent insurgency achieved its stated goals 26% of the time. And what were these goals? They, of course, had to control for goals, right? can't have movements pursuing all kinds of different goals and compare them. So what they said is we're only going to look at insurgencies and civil resistance campaigns that are going for what we call maximalist objectives. Basically, movements that are trying to fundamentally change a government, expel a foreign occupier, or get self-determination, right? Like objectives we would think of as being some of the hardest to achieve. And so when you do that, you still find that the success rate of civil resistance was twice violent insurgency. And then they control for a whole bunch of factors. And they say, yes, but what about a state's brutality? Perhaps civil resistance campaigns emerged in easier circumstances. Maybe that's why they succeeded. Didn't hold up to scrutiny. In fact, the average civil resistance campaign emerged in a slightly more authoritarian environment than the average violent insurgency. And then you could look at other factors. They look at like the power of a state. Does that influence if a movement emerges and wins and various other factors? And most of them did not have a major correlation. They found that the use of violent repression against a nonviolent movement decreased the nonviolent movement's chance of success by 35%. And there are two ways to look at that, because on the one hand, 35% is a considerable amount, right? Violence has an impact and it can foil movements. And on the other hand, the conventional wisdom for many, I think, is that violence has a 100% effectiveness against civil resistance. And this clearly shows that's not the case. So 35% is a significant number, but it's actually less than most people would assume. They have many other findings too. I'll stop with one more. I mean, what they find that I think is one of the most relevant today is the relationship between civil resistance, bottom-up, nonviolent grassroots pressure, and democratization. 
what they did is they said, well, let's look at what happens when a movement generates a political transition. Let's look five years later, because immediately after the transition, everything's kind of unclear. So five years, maybe some stable state has emerged. Let's look then. And what they found is that when you have civil resistance drive a political transition, and most of those political transitions are from authoritarian governments or non-democratic governments, there's a 57% chance of a democratic outcome five years later. On the other hand, for violent insurgencies that create a political transition, there's a 6% chance that those lead to a democratic outcome five years later. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But those are some really key findings that I feel like really everyone should know. Yes. And that's great knowledge. I, you put it so succinctly and clearly. I thank you so much, folks. We are speaking with Hardy Merriman. He's president and CEO of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. They're based in Washington, D.C., and they're undergoing a, a change in their focus, their, the way that they're doing their work. I understand, by the way, Hardy, that you're president and CEO at least until June 30th, at which point, I don't know if you're firing yourself or uh, laying yourself off or just how does that work? Oh, I just, I'm ready to step down. I've worked with ICNC for 15 years since the organization was three years old in 2005. And I've run it for six years and it's time for transition. I am ready to have a little more flexibility with my time running an organization. Anyone, a shout out to all the executive directors out there who will know intuitively <laughs> how much work it takes to run an organization, care about an organization, care about its mission, its people, and those with whom you aim to serve. And, you know, I, I was ready to have more flexibility with my time. You know, what ultimately, what got me involved in this field in the first place was, again, the idea of, of serving people as much as I could. And to be sure, running an organization is a form of service. It's actually, there's a lot of self-sacrifice that can be involved. But I, I am ready to do a little bit more of the direct substantive work that gets me out of bed in the morning uh, with regards to my field. So yeah, I'm stepping down on June 30th. And after that, I will be a senior advisor to ICNC. Uh, I'll be an independent contractor, but a senior advisor and a member of the board and see what's next. I figure that these are pretty big shoes to fill. I would be daunted the idea of stepping into your shoes. Who's taking over from you? Or do we know yet? I mean, there's transition period going on here. Board chair and organizational founder Peter Ackerman will take over as the new president CEO. The board has announced that there's going to be a different organizational model. So part of this transition, I mentioned some of the priorities earlier, will involve winding down programs, particularly those that focus on research and scholarship, and staff will be laid off. So that, that is challenging. And that's part of the transition. And then what the board has said is that ICNC will become more based on consultants that are doing project-based work to advance its, its goals. I'd like to take a little bit of a detour, and I really don't know if Hardy Merriman knows much about Arab Spring, but you mentioned when quoting Erica and Maria's work that five years later, is democracy there or not? Many of us in 2011, when Arab Spring happened, we're very excited by the number of countries that were getting rid of dictatorships or that kind of control and moving towards democracy. I happen to have two friends here in Eau Claire who are from Egypt and have been involved in human rights and democracy work in Egypt. They're very disappointed. The CC administration, CC dictatorship has not been kind to democracy or to democratic ideals. 
how, from the study point of view, did Arab Spring go? Did it work? Did it not work? To what degree? That's 55% five years later, democratically operating, I don't think holds in that area. Well, I don't know if it, that area or not, but it doesn't hold in the case of Egypt or Yemen or Syria or Syria or Libya or others. Obviously, I agree with you there. And I think, you know, the debate about what happened in the Arab Spring and why is obviously one that many really erudite and smart people have weighed into, both within the region and outside of the region. And I don't feel like there's any one simple explanation, but I will share a few thoughts from my perspective and from my discipline and based on those with whom I've spoken. I mean, the first thing is let's, we can focus on some things that did work well for activists. And that would be, for example, the transition in Tunisia, which ended the rule of autocrat Ben Ali, who'd run the country for well over two decades. So there is one spot there that we can point to that did have an outcome that was certainly materially and politically better for the population as a whole. I think many would agree with that point. Then you have a function of waves is that the authoritarians learn too. So when you have Tunisia in December of 2010 that starts to transition, the leaders in Egypt are watching that and seeing what happened. That informs how they want to respond. As it spreads to Syria and Yemen and other places, the leaders in Bahrain, they're watching as well. And so because authoritarians learn, because fundamentally civil resistance is a contest between a population and the authoritarian, Or the adversary, it doesn't have to be authoritarian, it could be a you know, corporation, or, but in this case, it was many authoritarians. Both of them can get better at that contest. And I think the authoritarians learned through the process. So I think that is a factor. I think if people saw, okay, well, perhaps in the Tunisian case, X happened, let's shore up against X while we, X happening while we still have time. So that matters. And then, you know, I think... In some cases, uh, people may not have had the time to do certain in-depth preparations that were needed to create a political transition. You know, activists have one of the toughest jobs in the world, and often one of the least understood and least respected jobs in the world. And the, the other superlative, I'll say, is one of the most important jobs in the world. And so when we look at what people were up against in Libya and Syria and Bahrain and Yemen and elsewhere... We're talking about people taking on governments that have decades of experience entrenching themselves with authoritarian rule. They have access to material resources, a trained workforce, repressive capacity. And activists frequently go into this under-resourced. And in many places, it's hard to even get knowledge about civil resistance because the government's actively trying to block it, or even criminalizing workshops, or even criminalizing possession of information about civil resistance and how to nonviolently struggle. And so it's amazing in light of that huge differential, how much people accomplished, how well they did. So enormous respect to those who rose up and courageously took action. And it, for me, it raises the question of what could have been different? What could outsiders have done that could have been more supportive of those people? How could preparations have happened ahead of time? There's no substitute for people on the ground having their own strategy, being united, maintaining nonviolent discipline in their fight. And what can we do to support them? So with regards to the Arab Spring, I think there are many answers. But the question for me, I come out of it is what could people like me and others who have the privilege of being outside have done to try to, in the pre-movement period, be supportive and certainly in the peak movement period, be supportive. 
Well, I, like you, feel very heartened and thankful for all the people who've made the efforts who in some have had some degree of success. One of the things that many people who don't want to buy into nonviolence or civic resistance, they say, I don't want to be standing there and getting shot by the evil dictator or whomever, the tyrant. As if somehow, if you participate in a military insurrection, you're not going to be in danger of getting shot. And that's why the the work that Erica and Mario did was so important is because it actually compares and says, okay, what are your consequences? What is How successful are you? And folks, we'll talk about this and much more as we continue to talk to Hardy Merriman for Spirit in Action today. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, and we've got all of our guests of the last 16 years out there, so you can trace your way to nonviolentconflict.org. That's nonviolent dash, also known as a hyphen, nonviolent-conflict.org. Have trouble remembering that? Come via northernspiritradio.org. You won't misspell it. And you'll find all of our guests. Also on our site, you'll find places to comment on this program. Please do come and comment. And communication going both ways is the best way to increase our chances of success, of doing good in the world. We have a lot of world healers appearing here on Spirit in Action, and they're best when we know one another. Already, Hardy was talking about putting people in touch with one another. So please comment when you come, follow the links, look at the stations across the U.S. where we're carried, some 42 of them carry Northern Spirit Radio programs. There's a support us button so you can donate. Please do that. But even more so, support the other media. I don't hear you talking hardy much about the importance of media, but communication clearly is a big deal. And so community radio stations like those that carry spirit in action are vital to getting the community's voice out there. So please start by supporting them, then support us. There's so many good organizations like ICNC. And I'd like to mention something about the support for ICNC. I noticed as I was looking through your information that in particular, you do not accept money for ICNC from corporations or from governments. And I have that same policy. We have that same policy as the board for Northern Spirit Radio. And that's for some important reasons. Could you talk a little bit, Hardy, about why that's an important principle? This is a private foundation or it was funded by foundation money? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of the funding for ICNC has come from the Ackerman family, which founded ICNC. We've recently received grants, by recently, I mean, in the last year or two, from Carnegie Corporation of New York. Despite corporation in the name, it is a 501c3, it's nonprofit, and Humanity uh, United. But the vast majority of the funding has come from the Ackerman family. And the reason to not accept funding from governments or corporations is quite simple. It's enabled us to pursue our mission without thought of interference and imposition of agendas by either of those two classes of donors. It's also reputationally allowed us to go out into the world without people wondering whether we're advancing a government agenda or a corporate agenda. So that's it's a rare privilege to be able to work in a well-funded organization that doesn't take that kind of money. But because we have not had to, we've been able to do a lot of things that maybe we otherwise couldn't have done. I was wondering, we've talked about some negative examples of where democracy efforts have failed in Arab Spring, but I imagine there's some really good ones that maybe people are ignore. I think 
people are often drawn to disasters more than they are to successes. So when has nonviolent resistance been able to be successful? I'm just last 10, 15 years. Arab Spring didn't go so well. What did go well? So I'll start with an overall trend, which is, again, thanks to the work of Erica Chenoweth that I can quote this to you, but the number of new civil resistance movements that are trying to achieve maximalist goals, get political transitions, big goals worldwide has been increasing since the 1990s. It almost doubled between the 1990s and the decade of 2000 to 2009. And then over the last 10 years, it's increased, I think, over 50% again. So to be honest with you, like when you ask this question, I kind of start to get short-term amnesia because there are so many movements now that it's, it can be overwhelming to even think through just the last few years. But I will pick, for example, the movement for democracy in Sudan in 2019 in a story that I don't think has been nearly sufficiently covered to the extent of its significance, which is basically the, the story of how people in Sudan across ethnic groups, across gender, across professional groups, ended the dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir, and then defended against a military council that was committing a lot of killing and repression to ultimately get a power-sharing agreement where they have hopes for a democratic transition. I mean, when we think of Omar al-Bashir and his government, infamous for war and for atrocities in Darfur and other headline-grabbing, deeply disturbing acts, human rights abuse, it's amazing that he was ousted by a nonviolent movement of his own people. Again, in a, in a country that's highly ethnically diverse, where people could come together and do that. And so while we look now and see what's happening in Belarus and Burma, and it can seem, it is depressing, it is hard. When I say it's depressing, I'm not saying either of those movements are going to lose either. It's just depressing seeing the brutality that governments will do to their own people. And yet we see what happened in Sudan and we realize that when people say, well, civil resistance, it couldn't possibly work against a brutal authoritarian. There are times where it does. The other thing to remember is that the average length of a nonviolent movement trying to change a government is three years. It's not three months. It's not six months. It's three years. Some happen quicker. Some take much longer. If you ask me what I think about Belarus or Burma, my answer is it's too soon to tell. A lot of times when activists first rise up, they want to get a quick win, understandably, to overcome the fear and sense of atomization that dictatorships create and say, we've had enough, we've suffered enough, you can take no more from us, is emotionally incredibly powerful. And because people finally say, say we've had enough and start acting on it publicly and breaking through fear in new ways, they have had enough and they want change now. And yet, if your perspective is we have to win in three months or else we've lost, or we have to win in six months or we've lost, it's ignoring the fact that, again, there's an average three-year struggle. And my biggest concern, as things take longer than people expect, is that people say, well, the reason it's taking longer and not working is because of civil resistance. Let's discard it and try something else. Let's try violence. Well, a couple things. The average violent insurgency lasts for nine years. So anyone who thinks that violence will be a catalyst and move things along quicker, that's a historic. Look at what's happened in Syria over the last decade. Anyone who said that violence was going to move things along quicker in 2011 was sorely mistaken. People who may have argued that defensive violence was justified in Syria, well, it can be justified, but is it strategic is the question. So anyone who says, well, defensive violence could have been strategic, defense turned to offense, defense turns to offense, and then it starts to spiral. 
And so it's important when activists rise up to keep this longer timeline in mind. And what that will do also is it frees up the strategic imagination. Because if I think I have to win in a month, I don't have a lot of tools in my toolbox I can use. What do I need to protest? Do something good. There's not enough space to actually really think through campaigns and pressure points and target the weaknesses of the opponent, identify them, target them, build capacity to do that. Because I'm thinking in such short time horizons. But if you set your strategic thinking to, this might take a few years. The process of struggle will also build up the democratic base of the country. So there's something virtuous and powerful in the struggle itself. It may well be that the longer we struggle, the more durable the outcome will be. And let's build and pace ourselves so that we can win over time. That kind of a mindset is sometimes what's needed more these days. While you were speaking, Hardy, I was thinking about the U.S. and our experience with wars or with independence, right? The independence from England, I think that took something like seven years uh, from 76 to 83 1776. I was thinking about the Civil War, as we call it, five years. And people who think that a movement towards democracy and freedom is quick just haven't been looking at what really happens. Speaking about the Revolutionary War, one aspect of our own history as a country, as the United States, that people aren't, may not be fully aware of is the fact that there was easily a decade of nonviolent organizing and struggle between 1765 and 1775, before the first shots were fired and conquered in Lexington. There was resistance to the Stamp Act, there was resistance to the Townsend Acts, there was resistance to the Coercive Acts, there was alternative institution building in the form of alternative political governance through town meetings, alternative judicial structures created, alternative economic structures created to try to boycott British goods and get self-reliance. There were obviously all kinds of protests, civil disobedience, refusal to pay the Stamp Act, non-importation of British goods, a threat non-exportation of goods from the colonies to Britain. There are a whole range of nonviolent methods that were used in that time as a way to try to build capacity to resist British rule, to resist the crown. You know, John Adams, he has quotes where he says the revolution really happened before the first shots were fired. It was in the deeds people were doing beforehand. Uh, that's not the direct quote, but it was, it was born in the hearts of the people, he said. And so there's a lot about how these disparate colonies, as they were known then, formed a collective identity through shared nonviolent resistance. You know, what does that mean as a country? if part of the way we think about how the United States developed was not just through a revolutionary war, but through also acts of nonviolent resistance, creating social, political, and economic pressure. You know, that's not to gloss over many of the bad things going on at that time, whether it was to Native Americans, whether it was attitudes that some colonies had and some colonists had about slavery or anything else. It is simply to say that in spite of those things, there is also this explosion of nonviolent methods, which is historically interesting and I think relevant for the way we talk about how this country developed. The First Continental Congress developed out of nonviolent struggle. Town meetings were illegal and yet functionally became the new government after independence. Thank you for that insight on that, Hardy. You were claiming that it was it was hard, short-term memory <laughs> loss or short-term memory inattention to a number of the countries where nonviolent efforts have been undertaken. 
back in 2019, you had a blog post where you mentioned a number of them. Oh, please. So I just, memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned protests in Hong Kong, Indonesia, West Papau, Sudan, Algeria, Guinea, Catalonia, Russia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Chile, Ecuador, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Bolivia, Haiti, and the United States. Any of those you want to pick up is shining examples of here's what happens after a few years, the direction it can go. I mean, this is when I worked at an organization that had 100 staff members because I then I could have people who were in dialogue and understood all these things. I mean, I'm limited to what I can read in the English news as well as if I know an activist in the area trying to get their take. And certainly I'm limited by time. I'm not able to follow all of those. That period of time in 2019 that I referred to in that piece that you just mentioned was just an explosion of nonviolent movements. And again, it was, it's the zeitgeist of the times. It's borne out by the data. As people lose confidence in traditional institutional ways of making change, like elections and the legal system, as people start to say, look, those are necessary, but they're not sufficient by themselves, they turn towards nonviolent means. And that does seem to be a trend happening all over the world. I mean, you know, to take another example, you look at Algeria. Algeria did usher in a political transition, but progress towards democracy has stalled there. You know, Hong Kong, obviously, uh, the odds were incredibly hard in Hong Kong based on the fact that they were fighting against China. I was incredibly hopeful to see what was going on in Iraq in 2019 around issues of corruption and fighting against it. Lebanon has a long history of civil resistance. And the Lebanese, I am sure, will continue at it. Again, you know, 2019 itself is now two years ago. And I, I believe that these many of these struggles, whether they're immediately successful or not, they plant seeds. I'll share with you one other finding from Erica Chenoweth's work. She looked at what happens when a nonviolent struggle movement fails to achieve its stated goals, right? What happens five years after it fails? And the way she basically says, here's when a movement ends, is she looks at when the peak mobilization is, and then within a year, if it tailed off significantly, it's considered the end of the movement. So five years after that, if you get peak mobilization, transition doesn't happen. Five years later, she found that in 35% of the cases, there was still a democratic outcome. So even though the movement pushing for the change didn't achieve it immediately after achieving peak mobilization, it created sort of the, the fabric, the social fabric, the democratic fabric, the civil society that could create a transition subsequently. You know, each one of these struggles, activists learn, they change the political climate, they build skills, they build associations. And so that's really, that is a silver lining that we can take from these, even though it breaks my heart to see what's happening in the world sometimes. The other piece of that, though, and then I'll stop, is just we as people outside of these movements, and we all may have movements in our own communities, but, you know, someone working in an international NGO like myself, it's my responsibility increasingly to develop a movement-centered analysis. If I want to understand the world, I have to understand what movements are doing. If I want to push back on authoritarianism, which, let's be clear, whether you do it from the perspective of human rights or you do it from the perspective because more authoritarian world is going to be a more violent world and it's going to create more national security threats for the United States. Whether you come at it from a real politic angle of security threats or from a moral angle of human rights or anything in between, if you want to take it on, you can't ignore the data showing that civil resistance is the most powerful driver of transitions from authoritarian government. And, if that, and authoritarians know that and are learning and have been cooperating and have been coordinating and have been trying to support each other for well over a decade now and trying to squash these movements. What are we outside doing 
How are we outside who are sympathetic helping? So, you know, ICNC is one answer to that. Try to build up a base of knowledge, translate it. We have stuff in over 70 languages and dialects on our website, freely available. People can download it. Try to do workshops and a whole range of other stuff. For someone who works in the State Department or, you know, some other organization or the World Bank, it might be different. For journalists, it might be different. For people who are in citizens groups who want to do transnational solidarity, it could be different. But movements are not a sideshow. Movements are the main event for what advances human rights and democracy in this world. When we understand that and reorient from thinking, oh, we need to push the elites to really it's about what happens on the ground up, that's a change. And we should continue to challenge ourselves for how we can support them. You mentioned, Hardy, already some stuff about the United States. A lot of us during the Trump regime and certainly in the follow up from the Princeton study, which noted that the U.S. has moved further and further from democracy toward oligarchy. You mentioned the U.S. as one of the places where civil resistance is taking place. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, is it is civic resistance workable and effective in the United States, too? Yeah, and I, I'll preface my remarks by saying if I stumble into political commentary, please understand it's, it will be in my personal capacity and not my, in my organizational capacity as head of ICNC. But just speaking personally, I mean, the people wage civil resistance when institutions are failing when institutions are not working, when elections and the legal system or the economic system is not working, you can try as hard as you want, but you're not going to get a leg up on it because it's designed to fail you or it's too corrupted or it's inaccessible or lots of other reasons, usually combination, or you're deliberately marginalized. And so in those cases, civil resistance is what people choose. It has an incredibly rich history in this country, as I know you know, Mark, of everything from the struggle for women's suffrage to the labor movement, to the civil rights movement, to the environmental movement, anti-nuclear movement, ACT UP. I could go on. Rights of minorities. And so it's not surprising at all to me that we see it, and particularly in light of the Princeton study that you cited about how non-responsive the government can be to public sentiment. I assume that's the, that's the study you were citing. Right. And I expect it will continue. And when civil resistance happens, people, whether they're journalists, political analysts, or others, look at it as this exogenous event, as this event outside. Who are these people? What are they doing? In fact, it's sort of like, in, in what is this strange thing? But it's not strange at all. It's historically what strengthened our democracy. It's historically what's helped us achieve some of the things that we're most proud of as a country. So I expect it will continue. I may not agree with every word of every movement or every tactic they choose or you know, every stance, but generally speaking, for the health of our democracy, it is critical that there is space for civil resistance that is understood and that on balance, on the whole, it tends to have an effect that strengthens our democracy. I think there's maybe one last thing I'd like to ask you. Actually, there's about a dozen last things I'd like to ask you, because we haven't really talked about Hardy Merriman and what got you to this role. I mean, I I assume it was inspirational working with Jim Sharp, but you were already on a path. Why were you into civil resistance? Why was this important to you growing up in the United States? You, like I, am a white male in this country, and so we have a certain amount of privilege. We could go out there and get six figures or something in, in a certain area, and you instead headed to uh, something that didn't make you as rich. That could be a whole nother conversation. But I want to talk one more time about civil resistance versus nonviolence. Satyagraha, right, to Gandhi. 
I think there's a very particular reason to talk about civil resistance versus nonviolence. Could you enunciate that one more time? Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, I think the distinction started, of course, with, well, Sharp was the strongest proponent of the distinction between nonviolence and what he called nonviolent action. And Sharp basically said, okay, so Sharp, who I think, having worked for him, came from an ethical position on many of these things, said, well, if we're going to study it, let's just study it as a mode of political and social and economic behavior. So we'll isolate it as a form of behavior and then be able to conduct social science research on it. And it will have the added benefit of making it more palatable to large numbers of people if we describe it that way, because people will not think that it needs to involve some kind of signing up for ethics. It's simply, we, if we can just convince people that it's pragmatically more effective, we'll get more people. And so that was an argument that he frequently made. I have seen that argument borne out at times. And yet I want to be clear that in saying that, that does not in any way uh, predispose me against uh, those who advocate for nonviolence as a combination of ethics and behavior at all. And to be sure, the term nonviolence also has numerous definitions. And Mark, I don't even know if the way I just defined it is how you would define it. So I want to be respectful of that. But I think Sharp also in an effort to try to get respect from certain quarters um, or this is my guess, you know, went in a very sort of firm direction this way. And the field has continued this way. And we use the term civil resistance and we're largely come out of that intellectual tradition. And yet I think in an attempt to distinguish so much, there's now actually a looping back among certain advocates of civil resistance as a pragmatic way of fighting to see a lot of the wisdom in the nonviolence traditions as well, to see that it wasn't just ethics, that there were strategic elements that a movement committed to nonviolence brought, that if you don't bring those through that, you have to find another way to bring them. There's a lot more to nonviolence than just a view. It has strategic ramifications for movement cohesion, unity, how movements behave when they are facing repression, and a whole range of other consequences that really matter. So, you know, there's tension but it's a creative tension. It's a, it's a good tension. It's a tension that I think can be managed. And there's also a lot of synergy. That's, I guess, what I'd say. There's so much more you could say, and we don't have time for it, unfortunately, but I do thank you so much for all this time that you've put towards serving us here to getting these words out through spirit and action to the world. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Hardy Merriman. He is CEO and president of an organization called ICNC, International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. He'll be stepping down because of a transition that'll be happening the end of June. But you can find out more about that and trace their continuing and growing work at nonviolent-conflict.org. Questions about the links and how you spell things, just come by nerdandspiritradio.org. We'll have it there. Hardy, thank you so much for your 18 years of service so far in this great work. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Mark. And folks, again, the link, nonviolent-conflict.org, links on nordenspiritradio.org. Thank you, Hardy Merriman. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on nordenspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice
Our lives will feel the echo of our healing.